If you've seen the program, you know that it begins like this. My name is Mike Rowe, and this is my job. I explore the country looking for people who aren't afraid to get dirty, hardworking men and women who earn an honest living doing the kinds of jobs that make civilized life possible for the rest of us. Now, get ready to get dirty. And for the next uh, hour, the TV viewer is given a ringside seat while Mike Rowe uh, is apprenticed for a day, uh, just doing dirty jobs, challenging work that the average person just doesn't want to have anything to do with. And he's done about 200 of these programs, and here are the jobs that I can mention, okay? A baloney maker, a camel rancher, let's not even go there, an oil rigger, a parade float dismantler, a mushroom farmer, a tofu maker, I think that's fun this month, uh, working at a mannequin factory, my goodness, these Dirty jobs, these challenging jobs that the average person doesn't want to have anything to do with. But for about 200 shows now, Mike Rowe has been showcasing these. And if you've seen the program, you would agree with me about these two observations. And the first is this. Mike Rowe never makes fun of any of uh, these jobs. In fact, consistently he shows respect uh, and, and has respect for those who are willing to do the hard, dirty work, dirty job. And the second observation is this. He consistently notices how cheerful these people are. In fact, he, he notes that it, it's, it's like the dirtier the job, the happier the worker. Isn't that an interesting thing? Well, today I want to begin a series of messages that I've titled Dirty Jobs, but I don't want to talk about, you know, being a mattress recycler or a baloney maker or a billboard installer or a high-rise window washer. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the dirty job, the dirty job that's undertaken by men and women and students of God who belong to and are a part of the building of a local Christian community. I want to talk about the dirty job of, of the work that it takes to build a vibrant, cross-centered, Christ-focused Christian congregation. I want to talk about the dirty job that's involved in having a spiritually healthy local church like Windsor Road. That's what I want to talk about. Now, some of you might push back and say, why would you call something like that dirty job? Just stay with me here for a minute. You may be here for the first time. This may be your first visit here at Windsor Road. I mean, when you pulled into the parking lot and you came up to the facility, I mean, you do need to understand something here that, uh, you know, Warren Buffett didn't grant us this land to put this campus facility on. You, you do know that, don't you? 
And we haven't gotten any checks from Bill Gates. Still waiting on that. And years ago, in the early 70s, I think 1973, a group of people gathered. They started worshiping together. They worshiped at, uh, over at Country Fair. It's where the Chase Bank is. Well, back then it was the Fox Theater. And that's where the services started until about 76. Uh, and then the move was made out here. And then people gave sacrificially. Then in 84, you know, the, the bi-level building was put up. And then about eight years ago, you know, God's people contributed about one and a half million dollars. And, and so you know, these things don't happen by themselves. They, they happen by people who love God and love people and they, they, they take ownership of the faith. And they trust Jesus. And they're willing to be selfless servants. This place is functioning healthy because of servants who give and who realize that God has a bigger shovel than they do. I mean, that's, and that's, that's difficult, hard, and, 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 and it's a dirty job. It just is. Now, is there a word? Is there a word for those who help make that happen? Is there? And the answer is yes. And the word is the New Testament book of Titus. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Titus. You'll find that on page 844 of your church Bibles. And the book of Titus is actually a letter. A letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his lieutenants, one of his assistants. A man of God whose name was Titus. And, and Paul and Titus, oh, I don't want to give away too much, all right? But I want us to read this morning um, chapter 1. And I want to give you the story. This letter just didn't show up out of thin air. It came as a result of a specific situation to this specific person at a specific place and time. And so, as we look through these verses this morning, I, I, I just want to draw your attention to two truths. And the first is this. I want us to see first that Titus did, in fact, have a dirty job to do. All right? That's what I want us to see. We're going to see that. It's going to be very clear. And then secondly, I want us to answer the question, and Mary Vita answered it in her situation, but I want to answer this question, what is it that makes a dirty job worth doing, okay? So we're going to see that Titus had a dirty job, and then we're going to see what made that dirty job worth doing. So let's read chapter 1 of Titus, it's on page 844 of your church Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. Just follow along with me. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son 
in our common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The reason why I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer, now that's the same word as an elder, since an overseer or elder is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let's just stop there. Now, just looking at what we've seen so far, can you kind of begin to piece together what's happening here? I mean, Titus is not at Disney World. I mean, he, he's not in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. I mean, he's, in a, he's, in a, he's got a dirty job to do. He's got a, now, so what makes this job so dirty? What makes this dirty job so dirty? Well, let's kind of piece together a little bit, and let's learn about where he is. Where is he, by the way? What does Paul say? Where is he? He's in Crete. You know want to know where Crete is? Let's take a look here. All right, there's Greece. Go right down there to the, yeah, there's the laser. That's nice. Nice job, guys. Yeah, we are high tech here at Windsor. Yeah. That's Crete, right about six, between 5 and 6 o'clock, and there's a satellite version. There you go. Hasn't gone anywhere. And then here's another NASA satellite version. Huh? Check that out. Take a look at that. Take a look at those mountains. That, now, now just, just hang on for that. We're talking about a place that's about 160 miles you know, east to west and about 40 miles north and south. And so all of that... All of that area in geography right there. You've got mountains. You've got, uh, I think there's a picture of a, a gorge there. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was there, you know, 2,000 years ago. This was the setting of this, uh, this letter to Titus. Let's see the next. Uh, check that out. Beautiful, beautiful beaches, blue water. Is that, is that a pretty sight with all the clouds we've seen this past month? Let's go to Crete, okay? And there's the sunset. Man, beautiful. Crete was a beautiful, beautiful place. So what made it a dirty job? Crete was a beautiful place filled with really bad people. That's what made it a dirty job. Bad, bad people. Harsh, harsh environment. And if I could summarize the culture in which Titus lived, I would just have you look down at verse 12. 
Paul says in Titus 1 verse 12, even one of their own prophets, okay? So Paul's not accusing these people of being this way. Paul is quoting one of their own who has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's where they are. Always liars. Always liars. Now the New Testament to us comes in the Greek language and the Greeks invented a word to describe the Cretans. It, it, it was the word which would literally be translated to Crete eyes. What's that mean? It means to be a liar, to be a deceiver. That was the whole, that's what the whole culture was based on. It was just based on deception and lies. And, and, and uh, that's why until the Roman Empire came and took over in a military conquest, that's why Crete was made up of really about a hundred fiercely independent city-states. Because you, you can't function as a unified body if you don't trust anybody. And so here you have these fiercely independent city-state-like towns, and, 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 and deception was just the norm. That's just kind of how they got along with each other. In fact, it goes back to their cultural history. You see, Crete archaeologists tell us, Crete was the birthplace of European civilization. Uh, Crete was the birthplace of Greek culture. And the Cretans believed in their, in their history, in their story, the Cretans believed that the Greek gods you know, came from Crete. And so, and, and they have a legend, they have a story of this king, this man-king who kind of morphed into godlike status as he deceived. He fathered many children from many women because he deceived them by wooing them and had many children. And this, this, this God, this king man ascended through deception to mythological Greek god, godlike proportions and his name became Zeus. That's what the Greeks believe. Now, 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 you say, well, that's just a legend. Y- yeah, I know, but you see, that, that becomes real as that is lived out in the lives of the actual inhabitants on that island, you see. And so, so, so what became the norm was ascension and getting ahead through deception. And that's why Cretans are always liars, you see. Always liars, evil brutes. What's that? Well, think of the word vicious beasts. Vicious beasts. We learned from history that there were no predatory animals on the island of Crete. You know, no wolves or bears or anything like that. They didn't need any predatory animals because they had, they had predatory humans. That, I'm not kidding you. That's just the, you know how they raised boys on the island of Crete? What they would do is they would rip the boys away from the families, away from their mothers, and they would herd them according to age group, and, and then they would put them in, in, in what simply was called men's halls filled with filth, moral filth, immorality, and it was almost like, the, the, it was almost like a survival game. And, and, and it was very close to the Spartan school of raising boys. It was just, it was just absolutely filthy. And, and they were evil, vicious beasts. They were 
uh, Plutarch says that the Cretans were among the most warlike of people. They were mercenaries. They fought for whoever paid the most. That was the way they fought. And, and, and why would they do this? Will we get to this last descriptor, lazy gluttons. Now, when I first read that in, in uh, the church Bible, the NIV, I thought, oh, they were couch potatoes. No, that's not what's being communicated there. And, and I think it's an inadequate translation. They didn't ask me, but the word lazy there, the word lazy, the thought behind the word lazy is undisciplined or unbridled, okay, or wild, lazy, and, and, the, and the thought behind glutton has to do with your appetite. They had, they had appetites that were unbridled. Oh, you mean they were addicted? Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what we're talking. They were addicted to what? To whatever. To whatever the human appetites were. You know, whether it's food, whether it's drink, whether it's conquest, whether it's money, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Always liars, evil brutes, unbridled appetites. That, well, that was where Paul left Titus. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Sailing away. Good luck. <laughs> no. But that is where they left him. This, this is the place where Paul wants Titus to strengthen churches. This is the place. Not one, mind you, but what? Churches in every town. In every town. This is the place where Paul has left Titus. and This is the place where Paul wants Titus to train up and mentor leaders who will be shepherds and, and elders and, 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 and pastors of these local churches. You mean, you mean out of always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, we're gonna, you, you want me to get, make pastors out of that stock? Yeah, that's what Paul is saying. This is the place where Paul wants Titus to teach about families and husbands and and wives and how to be men of God and women of God and function as a spiritually healthy community. And this is the place where Paul wants Titus to teach the slaves to stop pilfering from their masters, but to be honest and to work hard and to not steal. And this is the place where Paul wants Titus to vigorously refute the grace without truth crowd. The grace, see, see that's, what, that's what verse 12 describes. The great, the, those who say, oh, we don't need any morals. We don't need any rules. Let's just do whatever we feel led to do. That's the grace without truth crowd. And Paul said, don't, don't, Titus, you get in there and don't put up with that. But this was a two-front war here because there was not only the grace without truth crowd, but there was also the, did you see it there? The truth without grace crowd. You see that? That's in verse 14. Pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. The legalist, the religious legalist, you see. So Titus is having to deal. There, were, there was a Hebrew element there on the island of Crete because there were Crete, listen, there were Cretans in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, that, that heard the gospel and, 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 and they returned back to Crete. And so you know, Paul and Titus would have naturally have gone to where the Hebrews were. So, but you see, they were some of them were legalists, and so you've got the grace without truth bunch, and you got the truth without grace bunch, and you know, and and you've got you've got folks that have just come out of awful, awful backgrounds, and. 
These are spiritual communities. And it's difficult and it's hard and it's emotionally draining. And you're just wondering to me, what's, God, what are you doing? Why do you have me here? You know? It makes you wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Or do, do we just quit? Uh, what makes it worth it? Well, you know, what makes, what makes the people who describe Titus 1.12 worth it? In your world, where you are, anybody going to Crete tomorrow morning? Hmm. What's going to make that worth it? Well, this is where it gets good. Because Paul tells Titus, here's what's going to make it worth it. Here's what makes it worth it. What makes it what makes a dirty job worth doing. What makes gospel work worth it is the gospel. That's what makes it worth it. The go- gospel work is worth it because of the gospel. The gospel is what's going to transform these always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons into elders. The gospel is what's going to transform a, 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 a how-to-raise-boys-like-Spartans culture into a functioning, healthy family that Paul describes in Titus chapter 2 where older men are temperate and worthy of respect and self-controlled and, and older women are reverent in the way they live. The gospel is going to do that. The gospel is going to transform slaves from, from thieves to to that which makes the teaching of God our Savior attractive. The gospel's going to do that. And what is the gospel? The gospel is Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. That's the gospel. What is the gospel? Oh, the gospel is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the gospel. The gospel, church family, is the truth that Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, notice how many times throughout the the letter to Titus, Jesus is referred to as our Savior or our great God and Savior. That phrase, our great God and Savior, was used of the emperor in the first century. And Paul is saying, Domitian is not the emperor or Nero is not the emperor. Jesus is the emperor, our great God and Savior. The gospel is the truth that Jesus Christ, our God and Savior, came from heaven to earth. The gospel is not that Jesus was this really extraordinary, talented human being who kind of ascended by deception to mythical proportions. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that his origin is from heaven to earth and he took on human flesh and he lived the righteous life that we should have lived and he mercifully died for our sins and he rose again and he secured the hope of eternal life. That's why Paul says in verse 2 that we have a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life and The gospel is that this same Jesus is now transforming us into a race eager to pursue him. 
what does chapter 2, verse 12 say? A people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's the gospel, church family. And that is the only message we have, and that is what's keeping us together. It's truly what's keeping us together, not the music style, not the color of paint on the wall, but Jesus. Jesus. And that's why Paul begins the way he begins in verses 1 through 4 when he tells Titus that he's a servant and an apostle for the faith of God's elect to, 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 to further their faith, to grow their faith and the knowledge of the truth. Church family, the gospel is truth-based. The Bible never asks us to believe that which is not true, ever, ever. A religious leader was once asked, if archaeologists could prove beyond a doubt that uh, you know, Jesus' bones were located somewhere in Jerusalem, you know, and that his remains were somewhere in Jerusalem, and they could produce that as evidence that those were the remains of the historic Jesus of Nazareth, the, the religious leader was asked, what would that do to your faith? And the religious leader said, nothing. Wouldn't do anything to my faith because I believe in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that's nice, but that's not what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul says that if Jesus is not bodily raised from the grave, let's go home. We're done. If Christ is not bodily raised from the grave, then Christians of all people are to be most pitied. Most pitied. You see, our faith is truth-based. That's why Paul speaks of the God, verse uh, 2, of faith and knowledge resting on the hope which God, who does not lie, literally the unfalse God, the uncola, this is the unfalse God, the unlying God, the unlying God. We're never asked to believe in that which isn't true. And the truth is that God's final and complete revelation is Jesus Christ. You see, you can have Buddhism without Buddha. And you can have Islam without the prophet Muhammad. You can. Um, if an imam were asked the question, is it possible for Allah to have given the Quran to someone other than the prophet Muhammad? The, the imam would probably say, well, well, there is one God and Allah and, and, and the prophet and Muhammad is his prophet. Well, you say, well, yeah, well, we know that. But what I'm saying is, theoretically, in Islam, is it possible for Allah to have given his revelation to someone other than the prophet Muhammad? And the imam would say, well, yeah, theoretically, in our system, yes, because Allah is sovereign and he can do what he chooses. But if you ask that about Christianity, is it possible for God to have given his final revelation to someone other than Jesus? If you ask me that, my response is I don't understand the question. I don't understand because Jesus is the final revelation. You cannot take Jesus away from Christianity. You cannot take Christ away. From, you don't have Christianity. If you don't have Christ, you don't have Christianity. And that is why 
The Apostle Paul says that the gospel is that the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has come in the flesh. And always, 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 the gospel leads to godliness. Always, always. That's why Paul says that Titus needs to confront those, verse 16, who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. Because your actions always affirm or deny what you believe, you see. William Lane Craig has written a fascinating book called A Reasonable Faith. And it's a book that I would recommend that talks about reasons for believing Christianity. And he gives evidences for the resurrection, and evidences uh, uh, for uh, just intelligent design and the cosmological argument for the existence of God and the moral argument for the existence of God. But after surveying all of these reasons for God's existence, he closes his book. This is fascinating. He says the ultimate apologetic, the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason that you're going to convince someone that God is real, William Lane Craig says, it's your life. It's your life. It's your godliness. So you see, Titus is the story of a Christian leader whose message to the Cretans was not shape up, but rather follow Jesus. You are a new race in Christ. That's why chapter 2, verse 14 says, to purify for himself a people, a race. That's why chapter 1, verse 1 says that, that our ministry is for the faith of God's elect. Who is that? Just those of Hebrew? No, those who have embraced Christ. Whether it's Hebrew or Cretan or Greek, Titus wasn't Jewish, he was Greek. But, but Paul was as Jewish as you're going to get. And yet Paul says, because of Jesus, Titus, you are my true son in our common faith, you see. No fiercely independent city-states. We're talking about one family, one church. And Jesus will never disappoint. And the gospel is not just for Midwestern folk. It's for hardened Cretans. The most unruly, unpromising, scary group of people. The gospel is what makes gospel work worth it. The gospel is what makes a dirty job worth doing. Now, who are you in this story? Who are you? Some of you feel like you were born in Crete. You're talking about my family. Yeah. You say, well, can, I, can change really happen? Yes. Yes, in fact, what Titus teaches us is that those, those who were always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, those who once belonged in the Titus 1.12 group, now, by the grace of God, are going to become supporters of church planting. I'm not joking. That's what chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 say. At the conclusion of the letter, Paul says to Titus, now do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. That means take up an offering for these missionaries. Well, who's, who, where are we going to get the money from? From those Cretans. You see what the gospel does? It transforms always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons into people who support things like Operation Christmas Child. God be praised. Some of you feel like you're Titus. 
And the questions that I ask as I'm reading this letter about myself are this. Why do I do what I do for God? What is it that drives me to further the faith of others? Is it for attention? Is it for ego? Is it for power? Is it for fame? Or is it so others may truly know him? And as discouraging and as dirty as this job can be, do I really believe that the gospel is powerful enough to change a family, a community, a village, a town, an island? So who are you? Who are you? I'll tell you who Titus was. Titus, like his teacher, was a servant of God. He had already made the decision, I belong to God, I'm doing, I'm doing what he tells me to do. And you know what? Church history tells us that Titus ended up uh, staying on Crete until uh, about the year 97 A.D., So he was there about 30 years, 30 years, and hands down, hands down, the most influential foreigner to ever step foot on the island of Crete was Titus. And because of his life and his ministry there, I kid you not, the trajectory of that island, the spiritual trajectory was transformed for the next thousand years Don't you tell me that can't happen here. Don't you tell me that. Because the gospel is the power of God to transform lives. Amen? Amen.